to the back. And here, if you're sticking with us here, you can take your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be looking at something briefly in Genesis chapter 3 this evening. But we're continuing on in our look at the priestly office. And again, just again to remind you, we've been looking at these three roles of Christ, of prophet, priest, and king. And we spent, I don't know, months looking at the prophetic office. And so now we began last week looking at the priestly office, and we're continuing on looking at that. And this evening, in particular, we're going to be looking at the patriarchs as priests. So this is the period of time um, up through um, Joseph and up through uh, Israel going down to Egypt. So how does the priestly role work its way out, particularly before Israel becomes a nation and before the law is given? But before we go any further, let's seek again the face of our Lord and seek the Spirit to be given to us this evening as we look to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for um, your love and your grace poured out to us in Christ. And Father, we thank you for um, the Spirit that's given to us as we walk as pilgrims on this earth. We thank you, Father, that your Spirit uh, guides and direct, uh, directs us. We are not left alone, we're not left as orphans. Uh, but, Father, that Christ continues to work through the Holy Spirit, and He does so as we encounter Him in Your Word. And so, Father, we need the Spirit this evening. We ask, Father, that the Spirit would work in our hearts and, and illuminate Your Word to us, that it would show us the glory of Christ, and that as we see that glory, we would be changed into that same image, Father. Continually do this work uh, every time we open Your Word, every time we interact and read it. Father, may your spirit be working within us. We're dependent upon him, Lord, and so we ask that he would work as only he can. Father, work in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So to just briefly review, we talked about uh, how, God, how man, God created mankind to be priests. So a priest is someone who stands before God, someone who stands as an intercessor, someone who has access to God. And in the garden, Adam and Eve had unrestricted access to God. They were unfettered by anything. But a problem occurred, and that problem was what? Sin. Sin came into the world, and it affected the relationship that mankind had with God. And so that, that role that they were created for as priests now was distorted. In fact, even in their own efforts to cover up their own sin by sewing together fig leaves and trying to make loincloths in that way, it, it indicated that they could not save themselves, that they needed someone to come. And so uh, after the fall, I think it's important for us to see how this all works its way out in the patriarchs. And so that the first patriarch, we oftentimes, I think sometimes you ask that question, who is the first patriarch? And oftentimes the answer would be Abraham. But Abraham was really not the first patriarch. Uh, Adam was the first patriarch. And so let's look at how this role of a priest works its way out or how God indicates that for us as we see Adam after the fall. So again, as we've seen, Adam and Eve were created to commune with God face to face. But the entrance of sin separated humanity from God, drove them from His presence. It's not just that we couldn't come into the presence of God, but that God Himself pushed us away, that we were cast out by, from God's presence because of our sin. 
And so following sin, something had to happen for us to know God. Mediation would be needed to commune with God. Now, that word mediation, we talk about priests as mediators. I think that term, we don't use it that often in, in common language today, but it is used particularly when you talk about um, peace conferences. So you think about today, you have two nations at war, and there's someone who comes in and mediates and tries to bring peace between enemies. And so this says something, the fact that a mediator is necessary to know God, what does it say about whether or not we have peace with God? In our sin, we do not have peace with God. In fact, we are enemies, we're hostile to the things of the Lord. And so mediation would be needed to commune with God. And we see a hint of this described for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So I'd had you turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be looking there in just a second. But I wanted to look back for a second at Genesis three, fifteen. Notice what God says. Now this is what's called, and if you want to use the big technical theological term, this is the proto-evangelium, all right? And that is a Latin phrase that just simply means first mention of the gospel. So what is this first mention of the gospel? Well, God promises that he'll put enmity between between the, the devil and the woman, and then particularly that there would be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. So again, notice the idea of conflict coming in here. There is enmity between the devil's seed and Eve's seed. And this conflict is going to come to a head in a moment when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So I think it's important for us to see that this is the promise of what one of my professors that uh, I, I really loved when I was in college and seminary, his name's Michael Barrett, um, He's actually been here and preached here a couple times. One of the things he describes this as is the promise of a curse reverser. Someone who's going to take this enmity, this, this, this hostility, and work it out so that there can be reconciliation with God and defeat of the enemies of God. And notice where this hope that God is giving to Adam and Eve is laid. It's laid in the crushing or the bruising of the head of the serpent. Cutting, killing the head of the serpent is the thing that destroys the power of the serpent. But this comes through the means of the suffering of the one who will reverse the curse. Notice what he says. This one, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent, but his own heel will be what? Bruised. Or we could actually say crushed in the sense that there is a a severe infliction of suffering as a result of this. And so, in some sense, at least at the very beginning here, we get an idea that the one who's going to reverse the curse is going to fix the enmity between God and man. He himself is going to have to suffer some of the effects of the curse for the sake of bringing about Salvation, And again, this is, this is where we see the first seeds of an idea of what we call penal substitution, that Christ was a substitute for the penalty that we deserved for sin. 
Now, after the fall, all right, we see that, this again, mediation is required. And then looking in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see this promise of a mediator or a curse reverser who's to come. There's some things that we can see about this mediation. We see that this mediation cannot be dependent on the work of, and there's supposed to be humanity there in the phrase, so sorry, that cannot be dependent on the work of humanity. Notice what Adam and Eve sought to do when they sewed those fig leaves together. They wanted to cover their nakedness so that they could come before the Lord. But we talked about last week, they knew that it wasn't sufficient, right? Because what did, they had those fig leaves all sewed together. They, they had those loincloths on. But when God came in the cool of the day into the garden, did they go to God or did they retreat from Him? They retreated. They hid themselves among the trees of the garden, displaying that their own efforts to mediate sin wouldn't work. And they knew it. They intuitively knew it, that their own efforts could not bring about salvation. So there's this promise of the curse reverser, showing that it can't be dependent on the work of humanity. And then secondly, that for the curse to be reversed, there would have to be a sacrifice. In fact, we see this in, um, in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of what? Skins. Animal skins. And he clothed them. God takes animals, He kills them, and uses their garments to clothe Adam and Eve. Here we see, and this is the thing, what what are the wages of sin? What did God say would happen? In the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day they would surely what? Die. But instead of them dying physically, something else dies physically. A substitute an animal is killed to cover their sin. And, and the, the, the idea here is that that was, at least for that time, sufficient to provide some sense of covering over their sins. Death of a substitute. Now, again, God's word was not void when he said, in that day you will surely die, and then Adam and Eve don't die. All right? They did die. And that's seen in the fact that they were spiritually dead. They had no desire to come near God. In fact, they desired to flee away from Him. And that is the evidence of spiritual death. But physical death, God is merciful to them by bringing about the death of an animal rather than their own death. You know, some of you maybe have seen this video. There's a a theologian that, that has... He passed away the last 10 years, R.C. Sproul. Many of you have heard of R.C. Sproul. He's a, he's a Yenzer, all right? He's from Pittsburgh, founded Ligonier Ministries, and that's based because it was started in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Um, so there, he, at these conferences that he has, it's, it's an international organization, and he has some of, the, some of the brightest minds in Christianity today that would come in and do these panels. And so he would sit on those panels, and, and one of the panels, somebody asked a question of, of the panel, they said, wasn't God being harsh because they just ate of some fruit of a tree? Like the fact that they were going to be banished from the garden and that death would come into the world as a result of that. Wasn't, wasn't God being too harsh? And that was the question that was brought up. And it's just this, 
This funny instance because R.C. sort of looks at that question and, and, and he looks at the crowd and he goes, and it's this funny sort of viral moment, he goes, what's wrong with you people? Because instead of death, physical death happening to them, animals die instead and Adam and Eve are sent out covered by God's own work of substitution for them. God makes a way for them to not feel the instant effects of death. You have this this man that was made out of the dirt thumbing his nose at a holy and righteous God and instead of God just squashing him in that moment God is merciful to him and we see the need of a sacrifice in the fact that he takes animals kills them and uses them to cover Adam and Eve I think it's also important to note that since these animals died and their skins were taken and used there would also have to be the shedding of blood. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, as we're going to see, and as we see in the New Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So, all of this, at the very beginning, God is showing that for there to be hope from the curse, the curse reverser promised in Genesis 3.15 would in some way stand in the place of those who have been cursed. But it would not defeat him. While his heel may be crushed, the head of the serpent would be destroyed completely through the power of what the coming sacrifice, and as we're soon going to see, the coming priest would bring about. So, there's this vivid portrayal of the need for death, the need for a mediator, the need for a sacrifice. And then we continue on in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, and we see Cain and Abel as priests. So look with me in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be what? Accepted. But, and I'm sorry, and if you do not well, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So, in Genesis 4, sin and its consequences clearly being established. Animals are killed. Adam and Eve die spiritually. We now see what the way of life was like for fallen 
humanity and the need for sacrifice. I think it's interesting to note here that the way that this is described is though this was just a commonplace thing, that there was a knowledge to some extent given to Cain and Abel that they needed to bring a sacrifice before the Lord. And the only way that they would have known this is if Adam and Eve were exercising that prophetic role that was given them, which was to take the word of the Lord and to give it to others. And so, and again, there's, there's I think, a, a really good application here for parents. One of your primary roles to your family is to speak the hope of Christ, speak the hope of the gospel to your children. That, 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 that prophetic role we see back with Adam and Eve, as they had to have explained to Cain and Abel, as they were children, what they needed to do. And so they bring sacrifices. They act as priests, bringing these sacrifices before the Lord. Cain brings a sacrifice from the fruit of the ground. Abel brings a sacrifice that was the firstborn of his flock. Now, there's, a, there's been a lot of ink spilled over why did God have regard for Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. There are people who will say, well, Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. Um, there, there are people who will say, well, he must have not done it in, in the right manner. We're going to look at some very clear indications as to why that are provided for us in the New Testament. But I think we can see the first sort of difference between them is the way that it's described in the passage. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. How is that different than Abel's offering? Besides the fact that Abel bought an animal, what type of animal did Abel bring? What quality of sacrifice did Abel bring? It wasn't you know, just a hodgepodge of whatever he could find. He brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And in fact, we see in the law that's given, that this becomes a pattern for the sacrifices that are to be done in the Old Testament. The firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep, the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are what? Holy, set apart. And what are you to do with those firstborn? You're to take their blood and sprinkle it on the altar to burn their fat as a food offering And it becomes a what? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. That term, pleasing aroma, is something that's going to continue to come up as we look at this concept of sacrifice and the priestly duty in the Old Testament. One of the things that a sacrifice was given for was for the sake of making us if I can say it this way in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a reverent way, making us accept or making us bearable to the Lord. Now, now think, think for a second back to, to what we looked at with Noah this morning. God's assessment of the world was that every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. God is a God who is so holy that He cannot even look upon sin. And the Scriptures particularly the Hebrew Scriptures, vividly portray sin as something that stinks. It is awful. And so this God looks at the world that He's created and what is the savor that comes from His world? Nothing but the stench of sin. 
So what is it that is able to take away the stench of sin? It is an acceptable sacrifice. And that's where we see this idea of a pleasing aroma. Now, Cain brought of the ground. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord regarded Abel's sacrifice. The Lord regarded Abel's sacrifice. He gave the best, as we just mentioned. He brought of the firstborn of his flock, their fat portions. But that's not the only thing that Abel is commended for. That is not the real reason why God regards Abel's sacrifice. Because, I mean, if you think about it, if God accepted Abel purely because he brought the best, then what does that say about we can bring? If we bring our best, God should accept it, right? That's not why. That's not the only reason why. And it's not the primary reason why God accepted Abel's sacrifice. We see the answer to this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of what? Faith. What is it that differentiated Abel's sacrifice from Cain? It was Abel's Faith. Notice what's said here. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as what? Righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What's amazing here is to see that while there is a contrast in the quality of what Cain and Abel brought, the true contrast is in the heart attitude that God has, or that Abel has. The Lord regarded Abel's sacrifice because he had faith. The Lord rejected Cain's sacrifice because faith did not exist. Cain only offered an offering of the fruit of the ground, and in fact, when we look in the Old Testament law, which we're going to probably in a couple weeks, you'll actually see God telling the Levites that they are not to offer a grain sacrifice or a, a sacrifice of the fruit of the ground on the altar, that the altar is specifically meant for a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. But we also see, as God rejected it, that Cain did not have faith. We actually see this in Cain's entire attitude afterwards. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, it says in verse 5. So what did that do for Cain? Instead of Cain taking the, this rejection from the Lord to heart, seeking to repent of seeking to go the wrong way and turn to the Lord, Cain gets what? Angry. He gets angry at the Lord and his face falls. God goes on and he doesn't leave Cain there. He graciously speaks his word to him. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry? 
I mean, think about this for a second. Cain is the one who has violated what God has said. He is the one who is steeped in sin. He is the one who is rebelling against God. God doesn't accept Cain's measly sacrifice, and Cain gets angry. Why are you angry? Who's the one who has the right to be angry? God. But yet he comes to Cain. He's like, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And then notice in verse 7, if you do well, if you do what's required, if you do like your brother Abel did, you will be what? Accepted. If you come in faith as your brother did, you will be accepted. But if you do not do well, that's an indication that what is at the door of your life? Sin. And, and the way that God describes the sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting to pounce upon Cain. Its desire is against you. Now, he, here's the lie that we always believe when we engage in sin. When we engage in sin, we believe the lie that sin is for us. That sin will somehow benefit us. That was the lie that the devil said to Adam and Eve, right? You'll not surely die. You'll be better. You'll be like God. But sin is always contrary to us. It always is damaging. It never benefits us. And so he warned him, said, you must rule over it. God did not accept his efforts. Well, what does... Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tell us. What is necessary to please God? What is necessary to draw near to God? Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Cain came and coming without faith, there was no way that God was ever going to accept His sacrifice. Because if you want to draw near to God, You have to believe that He is the God who is, that He exists, and He rewards those who seek Him as He has called them to do. If we don't have faith, then our efforts to come before the Lord are useless. And as we see, Cain here is given this warning. Sin's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. We know the rest of the story, right? What does Cain do? Goes out, he kills Abel. Goes out in the, in the field, rises up against his brother, and kills him. And we see, what was driving Cain to do that? John warns us that we're not to be like Cain, who was of who? The evil one. And murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were what? Righteous. Now, here's the thing. When Abel brought a sacrifice to the Lord of the best, of the first fruits, of the firstborn of his flock, his faith wasn't in what he had done. Because to be righteous, 
We have to have righteousness given to us through what? Faith. And that faith is in the curse reverser who had been promised in Genesis 3.15. That's where Abel's faith was settled. Now that faith caused him to obey... And so whatever Adam and Eve had said to him, he obeys the word of the Lord given through Adam and Eve, and that obedience is seen in his sacrifice, but that's not what commended him to God. It wasn't even his obedience, it was his faith in the one who was to come. That's why Abel was accepted, and that's why he's considered righteous. Because he looked for his righteousness, not in his good deeds, but in the Christ who was to come. So what does this tell us for the priestly work? That it, what's necessary for the priestly work? Well, it highlights that priestly duties require inward faith, not simply outward conformity. I, I think that when we get caught up in discussions about the fact that that Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice, and that's why God disregarded his offering. I think we're missing the point. Even though Abel offered correctly, it's not that outward conformity that he's commended for. The New Testament doesn't say that Abel was commended because he offered an animal. It says that he was commended because he had faith. He believed. Abel's accepted sacrifice was dependent upon God's promise. And so I think this this is so important for us to recognize, particularly if you're reading through the Bible and and you, you miss this, when you get to Leviticus, you get to Numbers, when you get to Deuteronomy and you see all these laws and these restrictions that were given to the Levites, you know, that they had to wear certain clothing and they had to, when they went into the temple, they had to cleanse themselves in a certain way and they, and they had to do all these different things. When you look at that, it's easy to say, well, all this outward conformity is what makes a good priest. That's not what makes a good priest. Faith is what's necessary for a good priest, for a priest to be accepted before the Lord. And in fact, what we see is that the efforts of priests beginning here and going through the rest of the Old Testament, they actually point us to the need for faith in a perfect priest. That there would be one who would come and would perfectly fulfill this role. So, we see Cain and Abel and the priestly role that they were to accomplish and the disastrous results that sin brought about as they turned away from faith, as Cain turned away from faith. Well, secondly, fast forward a good bit, we see again, or we see probably the next time we see this priestly work is Noah as priest. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 18 through chapter 7, verse Genesis chapter 6, verse 18 through 7, 3. Genesis 6, 18. So this is after the flood has happened, after the the waters of the earth have receded, after um, uh, Noah had come out of the ark with his family. In verse 18, God 
establishes a covenant with Noah and with um, I'm sorry, this is, I'm sorry, this is before the flood. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also... Now, this is what's important. Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then here we see, Take with you seven pairs of what? Clean animals the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of heavens, also male and female, to, their, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that God commanded him. We see that After the animals have entered the ark two by two, God specifically instructs Noah to bring seven pairs of clean animals and seven pairs of each bird. Now, why? Does anyone know why? Why are these clean animals necessary? What's Noah supposed to do with them? Sacrifice them. He's to act as a priest. And we see God, again, graciously instructing Noah in what to do. And so, upon exiting the ark, freeing the animals, what does Noah do? We can turn forward to uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. So they come out of the ark, the animals are freed, and what does Noah do? Noah built an altar to the Lord, And what does he do with those clean animals that God told him to bring? He takes some of them and he offers them as burnt offerings on the altar. Now notice verse 21. And the Lord smelled what? The pleasing aroma. Just a quick note. God had wiped off all sinful humanity with the flood. But there was still the need for what? A sacrifice. There was still the need for Noah to offer a sacrifice. So it shows, was Noah perfect? There was still the stench of sin on Noah and his family. And so this sacrifice that is offered in faith comes before the Lord as a pleasing aroma. And then notice what God does. Notice how God responds. He accepts, again, Noah's sacrifice as a pleasing aroma, and then he responds to Noah's work by making an eternal covenant of mercy. Look at what he says. The Lord said, he smelled, when, he, when he smelled the pleasing aroma. So there is a, an idea here that God is responding to Noah's sacrifice when He smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then we can go on through the rest of chapter 9, and, and we don't have the time to read through all that, but God blesses Noah. He reestablishes the commission for him to go and to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. There is the same command given to Adam and Eve is given to Noah and his family here. And then we see later on in, in chapter 9, God establishes a covenant with Noah and his offspring after him and with everything that is created that he would not destroy the world with a what? Flood. And so to this day, when you see a rainbow, what is that a reminder of? God's merciful promise. But in some way, that rainbow is linked back to Noah's response as he comes off the ark in offering a sacrifice before the Lord. He sets this bow in the clouds. It's the sign of the covenant between him and the earth. And so what we're beginning to see, what we're beginning to see develop is that God's promise of deliverance, the covenant, it requires what? Sacrifice. God's promise of deliverance, a covenant, requires sacrifice. And we see that with Noah as he comes and acts as a priest after the flood. Well, fast forward again, and we're, we're now getting closer to God specifically working with one family, and that family is the family of Abraham. But before we get there, there's a story in the Scriptures that likely is around the time of Abraham, but it's not found in Genesis, and it's a story of a man named Job. And so if you take your Bibles, turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And we're going to be mainly focusing on verses 4 through 5, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 this evening. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Verse 4, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. So the on his day is likely referring to his birthday. So birthday parties have ancient origins, all right? We have, essentially, that's what's going on here. They're celebrating their birthday. They'd have this feast, and they'd invite their friends and their sisters, uh, particularly their, their three sisters, to eat and to drink with them. And so there's this family get-together. The family is coming and celebrating uh, these brothers' birthdays. And when, now, now here we see verse 5, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. 
How would he do this? How would Job consecrate his family? Well, he would rise early in the morning and do what? Offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Why? Why was Job doing this? For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God, where? In their hearts. Thus, Job did how often? Continually. So we see the priestly role in Job's family intercession as he acts as a priest for his family. Um, it's interesting here, the, the discussion about these parties. Sometimes people have read this and thought that these parties were sort of riotous, sort of drunken um, celebrations. But that's really not what's going on here. These, these were probably just family celebrations. There, there's, there's really not a hint of anything inappropriate going on here. They're just having a feast together. Job, though, recognizes and desires that his children would be consecrated after they had gathered for that family meal. And what Job seeks to do is he takes of his wealth. All right? He, and notice, how often is he doing this? He's doing this continually. It's a constant thing. So it is a great expense to Job to do this as he offers these sacrifices. And again, this the note here that for sanctification to be possible, for us to be set apart, for there to be for us to be made holy, there needs to be the cleansings of sin, and the cleansing of sin requires what? A sacrifice. He does this. And this is what's amazing. He does this to atone for the possibility that his children could have sinned in the feasts held by his sons. And notice, where is that sin mostly focused? Job does not, and this is why I don't think these were drunken, revelous sort of, sort of type of things, because Job is saying that they have sinned and cursed God where? In their hearts. Job is focused on the inward attitude of his children. The sacrifice is given for their heart. That they would sin in their hearts, and in particular, that that sin would cause them to do what regarding God? To curse Him. To turn from Him in their hearts. Job's fear is that his children, as they come together, in some way, shape, or form would have turned away from God. He is, he is concerned with their inward spiritual state, not just what is seen on the outside. And this is so important for us to recognize about everything in the Christian life. Is God's primary concern your outward conformity to His law? Outward conformity. And the answer is no. Now, is He concerned about your conformity to the law? Yes. But that's not his primary concern. Because we act out of the abundance of our hearts. And so for true cleansing, cleansing that's, that brings us and makes us acceptable before the Lord, we need a sacrifice for our heart's attitude. 
We need a cleansing that goes deeper than just the outward things that we do that seeks to provide cleansing for our inward attitudes. And Job is doing this for his children. It's interesting, the Old Testament has in, in the, and we're going to talk about this in the next couple weeks, but in the law, there is one sort of pinnacle day of sacrifice. It's the day of atonement. It's interesting what the sacrifice that's given for the Day of Atonement is. The sacrifice given for the Day of Atonement is not a sacrifice given for every conscious sin that Israel was aware of. Right? That was what their sacrifices were supposed to be all the time. All right? the, the stuff that they were aware of, that's what they were to give sacrifices for. The Day of Atonement was to cleanse them for the sins that they didn't know about. For the sins that perhaps they overlooked because of attitudes in their hearts. The Day of Atonement was given to cleanse Israel completely, not just for their outward acts of sin. We see that emphasized here with Job. But there's also something else that we see about these sacrifices. How often did Job offer this sacrifice? Continually. Even here, we see the limitations of sacrifices given by men because he had to do it continually. In fact, the way that this is described in Job chapter 1 is that this is the normal course of Job's life. That on his children's birthdays, after their parties, he would offer a sacrifice for them. And so he'd, he'd do it, you know, my birthday was September 9th, so if Job was my father, probably September 10th, he'd offer the sacrifice, and then there'd be a year that would go by, and guess what would happen again the next year on, my, on September 10th? Another sacrifice, another sacrifice, another sacrifice. And, and this displays to us that our sacrifices, sacrifices mediated by men, are not sufficient They can never truly save because they go on and on and on and on. It provides a temporary cleansing, a a, a moment so that we are to some extent bearable in the face of God, that the stench of our sin is somehow covered by the sweet aroma of a sacrifice. But guess what comes up the next day? The stench of sin again. It shows us that we don't simply need cleansing from our rebellion. We need something else. We need to constantly be accepted before the Lord so that there no longer is a stench of sin. It shows us the need for positive righteousness from a sacrifice. And we know that this all points forward to Whose sacrifice that gives us righteousness? Christ's. So, the patriarchs as priests. Next week, we'll pick up with Abraham. And I got through these because I knew we were going to spend probably maybe a couple weeks on Abraham because there's a lot, um, a lot of glorious things uh, that we see as Abraham acted as uh, a priest for his family.
I think as, as we look back and, and see the patriarchs and we see their failures, we see what they did do right, and, and we see everything that goes on there, we should be all the more thankful for Genesis 3.15, right? That there's a promise of a curse reverser. Because if it was up to us to act as priests before God, there would be no hope. But there is hope in a perfect priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the clarity at which it speaks, Lord, and how it shows us the limitations of the sacrifices given by men. Lord, may this drive us to trust more in Christ, to depend more upon Christ. Father, to recognize that outward actions can never save. And even if we do those actions as as best as we can, our confidence can never be in our efforts Just as Abel's confidence was not in the fact that he brought the firstborn, his confidence was in the fact that he trusted in the coming Messiah. It was through faith that he came before you. So may that be our testimony tonight. As we approach the throne of God, we approach your throne, that our confidence would be not in our self, not even in the manner in which we come, but that our confidence would be in the one who sits at your right hand, our Savior and High Priest, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word. Continue to work in our hearts as we leave this place this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.